Good evening. I'm Dr. Lori Bettison Varga, President and Director of the Natural History Museums of Los Angeles County. I'm so pleased to welcome you to tonight's program, the second of a three-part series, When Women Vote, presented in partnership with Zocalo Public Square. We've enjoyed collaborating with our partners at Zocalo, who work to create public events where everyone is invited and all are welcome. Tonight's timely discussion asks, why don't women's votes put more women in power? This series has been organized in conjunction with the planning of an on-site exhibition scheduled to open in October at NHM, we hope, called Rise Up LA, A Century of Votes for Women, highlighting the lives of women in Los Angeles who fought for women's rights. To mark the centennial of the 19th Amendment, our curators have created a complimentary online exhibition that includes rare posters, photographs, political buttons, oral histories, and much more. This virtual exhibit can be accessed now on our website at nhmlac.org. Tonight's discussion on voting and political representation is moderated by Marisa Lagos, California politics and government correspondent at KQED and the co-host of the weekly podcast, Political Breakdown. Over to you, Marisa. I am KQED's politics correspondent or the public radio station up in San Francisco. I also host a weekly show and podcast called Political Breakdown. And I've been reporting on politics here in California for nearly 20 years. Um, and I'm really excited to introduce our panelists for tonight. They are an incredible and diverse group of women um, who I think are gonna give us a lot of insight into the question that we're posing. Uh, Martha S. Jones is a legal and cultural historian at Johns Hopkins University. She studies how black Americans have shaped American democracy and culture. Her recent book, which was just released uh, this month is Vanguard, how black women broke barriers, won the vote and insisted on equality for all. Welcome Martha. Thank you. Senator Hannah Jackson is a California state senator representing the 19th district of Santa Barbara County in Western Ventura County. She's known as an advocate for Californians' privacy rights, uh, for environmental protections, gun violence legislation, and other issues. And she is the author of Senate Bill 358, the California Fair Pay Act, which is the strongest equal pay law in the nation. Welcome, Senator Jackson. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, C. Nicole Mason is the president and CEO of the Institute for Women's Policy Research in Washington, D.C. She is previously the executive director of the Women of Color Policy Network at New York University. She's the author of Born Bright, A Young Girl's Journey from Nothing to Something in America, and has published commentary in the New York Times, Washington Post, and many other publications. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you. And finally, Rosie Rios is the 43rd treasurer of the United States under President Obama. She served from 2009 to 2016, and she led the effort to place women's portraits on U.S. currency, received the Treasury's highest honor, the Hamilton Award, and upon her, upon her resignation in 2016. And she is currently the CEO of Red River Associates, Associates, which is a real estate firm here in the Bay Area. Welcome, Rosie. Thank you. Good to be here. So, um... Our, our, the question that has been posed to us is why are women, why don't women hold more power essentially, right? That's the crux of this. Why, even though we are half of the population um, and, uh, you know, do win when we run for office, why are we less likely than men to run? Um, and, you know, and I think that this, this is about government and leadership, but I think it also extends to the private sector. Before, I want to kind of start with posing the question, and Nicole, I'd love to start with you, which is, why does this matter? Like, why 
what is the argument that we need more women in leadership? And I know that sounds obvious and counterintuitive, but like, is it, does it make a difference? What do we know about that? It really does make a difference. And when you ask people, both men and women, if um, it makes a difference whether or not women are in in positions of leadership, 69% say yes. And 69% of people say that um, having women in office will change and improve the quality of life uh, for all Americans. 77% say for for women and even men as well. So um, we know that when women hold leadership and are in power positions, both elected as well as in corporate positions, um, the kind of policies that women pass and advocate for are, you know, generally for the the greater good and for families and communities. So um, I think when women hold power, um, not only do they lead differently, um, you know, in some respect, but they we know that um, they're going to be looking out for the most vulnerable and the most of us. Senator Jackson, um, let's have you jump in on on this. I mean, what have you seen in your personal experience about why that representation is so important? Well, we bring our life experience to the table. Uh, We are, generally speaking, the caregivers. We are certainly uh, the birth mothers. uh, uh, And uh, we do bring the Uh, both the opportunities and the frustrations of a world that has both implicitly and explicitly uh, viewed us and the the characteristics that we generally uh, share as uh, second-class citizens and not necessarily worthy of being uh, respected and given positions of power. So I think it's important that uh, as we step up, we have that seat at the table. I have a friend who says, you know, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. Um, It's important that we be recognized for bringing a different perspective, our life experience. And also, uh, there is this, uh, I think, fairly strong um, uh, agreement that women uh, provide different kinds of leadership. Women tend to have a greater emotional intelligence and are more collaborative as leaders. And these are qualities that certainly uh, we have seen throughout the world uh, when we do have women leaders. And we do see it in legislatures and in those states where we have women who are in uh, either governors, and there aren't too many of them, but certainly when you see uh, what uh, female leadership is in government, it really does help change the dialogue and certainly open opportunities for women to participate and bring that experience, family that, that Nicole just mentioned, Uh, the greater good, that sense of community. Those are the things that women uh, experience at greater levels just by virtue of the nature, whether it's society or biology. Uh, Frankly, I don't care. It's that we do have that perspective and we need to be heard. We need to be listened to and respected and we need to be able to influence decision-making. I mean, Rosie Rios, you were treasurer under Obama for his entire two terms. You were in um, what our current president calls the swamp. Like, what did you see about the importance of having women in those positions, especially one like treasury where maybe, I don't know, I think like the money business world is even in some ways harder to break into for women. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, look, I was the first woman confirmed in treasury. Uh, Sadly, I was the only woman confirmed in Treasury in all of 2009. 
during one of the most consequential times of our economic history, and I was basically it. There were definitely folks in the pipeline, but it is a very difficult process to get through. So it's, you know, it's a little bit of a lonely world. It was also the same for the transition team, also on the Treasury Federal Reserve transition team in 2008, the height of the financial crisis. So you, know, you look around the room, it's not, I don't think it's a glass ceiling, I think it's a glass wall. And I'm just going to get right to the heart of it when I talk about this. It's, it's for me, the way I think of the world is when you think about kind of the pillars of influence, sex, money, power. And for too long, women have been relegated to the sex sandbox, talking about their bodies, promoting their bodies, defending their bodies. And the threat of opening up the money and power pillars to 51% of the population is just threatening. So bottom line, women have flatlined at 20% in almost every major economic and political indicator. It's not a secret, numbers don't lie. So look at the numbers. Congress, 23%. Governors, 18%. Mayors, 21%. S&P 500 board seats, 21%. S&P 500 executive managers, 26%. I can go on forever. Tenured professors, 27%. Equity law partners, 19%. I don't think it's an accident that we flatline. And it's been like that forever. Why is it, in my opinion, it's like you think about it a little bit, you get that one woman, maybe you think about it again, you do a little bit more, and then nothing. And nothing happens at 20%. So we're talking about structural change. I think you're, not, you're going to find very few people are going to say, well, you know, can women do a great job? Yes, of course. We've been having that conversation forever. It's not the what, it's not the how. Yeah. Martha Jones, I mean, you study history. How much do you, and, and, and you specifically study, the, you know, talk about a lot about the role of race in history. And we do, you know, we're so celebrating 100 years of women's suffrage. But as you point out in a lot of your work, it was not necessarily like a flip switch for especially black women. Um, and I, I think a lot of women of color um, when women's suffrage happened is, I mean, what do we know about then that tension between, you know, whether women sort of speak with one voice um, and, and how that impacts our ability to find power or whether we kind of get undermined by the same realities of broader society that I think often can make women kind of almost turn against each other. So um, I'm going to dial us back 100 years um, to 1920 um, and the road to the 19th Amendment. There's a lot in this conversation um, that animates the debate about whether or not there should be a federal amendment that prohibits the states from using sex when it comes to voting rights. Um, and it turns in part on um, ideas about women's um, exceptionality, um, their particular suitedness right, to the domestic realm um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, a view that says um, it's women who will clean up American politics, um, that will lift it out of the muck, that will lift politics out of corruption. Um, and while I think both of those ideas might ring in some sense true to us, it's important to recognize that those are old tropes um, that still enjoy a kind of life even in the 21st century um, in American politics. Um, there is a lot of speculation when it comes to the moment of the 19th Amendment about how, if American women will use the ballot at all, um, and when they use it, how they will use it. And the speculation is that uh, when women get the vote, um, it will, in a sense, be of no consequence because they will vote like their husbands, 
um, like their fathers, like their sons, right? So there's something just duplicative about women's votes. And there is a part of the story that is indeed about the ways in which some American women after 1920 certainly um, do mirror the party divisions that already animate American politics. Um, but the one voting block that does emerge among American women after 1920 um, is that of African-American women. Um, African-American women are profoundly feared in 1920 precisely because it is understood that they will vote as a block, that they will um, join the Republican Party, that they will support Republican Party candidates, I must say, another Republican Party, that of the early 20th century, rather than the one we um, know today. Um, and in fact, Black women in places like California and New York and Illinois show themselves to be just that, capable of discerning politics, organizing as a block. And while they won't immediately shape uh, national politics, um, they will very quickly in cities like Chicago um, shape the uh, who the candidates are and even the outcome at the polls um, by virtue of this disproportionate influence on um, the Republican side of the ledger. Um, so we live today where um, it's difficult to analyze women in politics um, as women, um, because when we disaggregate women, we discover that even today, African-American women continue to vote um, frequently as a block. Which is so interesting, because I think as a journalist, I mean, one of the traps I try not to fall into is to make broad generalizations about groups, whether they be, you know, gender based, ethnic based, whatever. Um, and but but I think that's true. And I, I want to kind of bring this to, back to today, Nicole, for a second and talk about something we saw happen in the state house that I know you wrote about, um, which was Assemblymember Buffy Wicks bringing her child, her four week old baby to the assembly floor um, at the end of session in the middle of a pandemic, you know, wearing a mask, um, feeling forced to do so. Um, and it actually rang kind of true for me. I took my now four year old to the Democratic Convention four years ago and you know, I was lucky enough to have the means to do that and to bring my mom along to help. But it was, you know, for me, a, a, a choice between staying with my child and a work opportunity. Um, and I'm curious, like when you look at these issues, obviously it's a hardship and it was a terrible choice for Buffy Wicks to have to make. But I don't know, do you feel like women are becoming more open about these sort of dual roles that we play? And is that a good thing in a way in terms of power and convincing people that like, I don't know, like, yeah, you need to have a seat at the table, but like, you might have, need to have a high chair next to you or whatever, you know? You know, I really think that um, women are fed up and uh, that we're in a moment of an awakening. Um, I think the pandemic has sort of um, given us, especially working women or women who um, have been told us over the last few months that um, you, you not only have to work 40 to 50 hours a week, but you're also going to be, you know, continue to be the primary caregiver for your families. And many of us um, realize that it's really impossible, but it's a burden that many of us have carried for some time. And, um, you know, you know, we, we've done it. I mean, you've done it. I've done it without a lot of complaint. 
And I think many women are realizing that the systems are broken. I think like Rosie was saying, and that it's not the what, like we, we understand the issues. It's the how, like, how do we get to a better place? How do we get to a work workplace, a society, an economy that values women as workers, women as, you know, um, you know, primary breadwinners in some cases, um, intellectual equals, um, powerful women and leaders. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we're in this moment that I'm really actually very excited about where women, um, you know, are um, just just uh, we're ready. We're, we're really ready. And we see that in the number of women who um, are seeking political office right now. Um, and some of the pushback with some of the additional responsibilities that are being placed upon women in this moment um, and actually calling out the systems for what they are not working. Rosie, I think that there's always been a connection between wealth and political power in our country. Um, women still make 70 cents on the dollar. Um, and then there's just like the the things Nicole's talking about, the time to run for office, like, you know, the question of whether you can use your campaign dollars to pay for a babysitter, right? Like, can you talk a little bit about how you see, like, what can we be doing to maybe disentangle that connection so that yeah. people, and it's not just about running for office, right? It's about having the time to be civically engaged and make change in your community. Yeah, so let's just, again, I love getting to solutions. I'm a solution outcome oriented person. So in my opinion, there is a consciousness that does not exist in this country when it comes to women, plain and simple, in our history, in our current structure, and definitely in our future. And so, you know, just to give you the example, so you mentioned, of course, I led the efforts, I initiated and led the efforts to put the portrait of a woman on our currency, uh, actually on our Federal Reserve notes for the first time in our history. And at the time when I had this awakening, there were almost 30 countries that had modern, who had women on their modern-day currency. It's pretty much just us and Saudi Arabia of the developed nations, and still actually to this day. So when I asked the question, when it came to me, and when I asked the question why that's never happened, I got the same answer from three different uh, folks who'd been at the Bureau of Government Printing for decades. And the answer, ready? No one's ever brought it up. And when you realize kind of what's missing when you're kind of awake and really can see the invisible it's kind of frightening and scary and actually exciting to actually do something about it so um it's kind of it's kind of like a, a play on unconscious bias right? so unconscious bias is when you don't realize that you're being influenced by something you're exposed to my theory is this could it be that we don't realize that we're being influenced by something we're not exposed to and the answer is absolutely and it's manifesting itself in different ways i'll give you a great example too many examples um, so when I was in Treasury, that building was built in the year 1800, 1800. Yet I walk in there, again, first female confirmed, and there's no nursing lounge. I'm starting to notice that some women who were supposed to come back from maternity leave weren't coming back. And I'm thinking, what century did I just walk into? So I initiated that. I used my own budget. We made it happen. And thankfully, the Affordable Care Act of 2010 mandated that every federal facility had to have a nursing lounge. So again, you don't realize it until you kind of really look for it. And that is in a million examples everywhere. And it's what you see, right? So my, my premise is, you know, we value what we see every day, but do we see what we value? Yeah. And the answer is no, no. And it continues on this very vicious cycle unless, again, you are deliberate, right? You've got to be conscious and conscientious, right? Action, awareness and then action. Again, too many examples that I can give you, but but for me, that was the beginning for me of this journey that I continue to this day on how every one of us 
could make a difference in, in how we think about facilitating a more inclusive environment. Senator Jackson, I mean, you have championed a lot of women's issues, and I put that in quotes because, you know, women's issues are human issues um, in the state legislature. Um, I mean, we can talk about the equal pay law you passed, um, but I'm, I'm just curious, like, what is the pushback you often hear among these? Is it around the, the cost, the, the finances of it, the, you know, the business, um, or is it more sort of broad and, and when what Rosie's talking about, which is just like not even being able to imagine that maybe these things matter. Well, I, I actually took the lead not only on the Fair Pay Act, but on uh, requiring women on corporate boards, mm -hmm. because a lot of this has to come, uh, Rosie mentioned she was, a, she was the leader and her voice counted and they had to listen to her. We need more women uh, in the corporate world making those decisions, bringing again that life experience to the table. And also the whole notion that women are in the workforce today uh, because they need to be uh, and because they want to be. And so what we uh, are looking for is we are looking for ways that we can um, create better laws and enforce these laws. We have to change the culture. And one of the ways that you do it is through legislation, which is what attracted me to, to get involved in, in the political world anyway. But what we're fighting against is we are fighting against a paternalistic um, or a patriarchy uh, where the notion that we should allow people, for example, to take paid family leave. Uh, Nicole, uh, and you were mentioning, you know, Buffy Wicks. One of the reasons Buffy came back was to vote on my bill. I needed her vote uh, in order to assure that women and men, but primarily women who take leave to care for a newborn or for a sick family member, will have their jobs back at the end of that leave. And the irony is that companies don't even pay for that leave. The employee, we pay for that leave. The notion that an employer could fire someone for taking the time, for making the choice that uh, she needs to care for a newborn or for a sick family member or for being sick herself. The notion that an employer should be able to make that decision is, uh, you talk about going back to the 1800s. That's exactly what it is. It's a world where women were supposed to be home and caring for the family and the men worked and there was really no question about it. And the notion that we would now insist that we create a 21st century that is more reflective of the fact that women are indeed in the workforce, we are valued in the workforce, but we do have um, those other responsibilities, and the corporate world has just got to get over it. You know, workers are not um, the, 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 the slaves, if you will, to their corporate masters. The notion that an employer could say to you, no, you cannot care for your family, because if you make that choice, I will fire you. I mean, uh, I think the United States is one of the few countries in certainly the industrialized world that has that attitude. And we just have to make it very clear. Um, and we've done that through legislation. And Buffy uh, helped me get to that 41. We got there only, you know, with three minutes literally left to spare in the legislative session that will now allow people to be able to uh, be assured their jobs will be there for them after they get back from taking care of their families that they pay for. Uh, so I think that we, it's a culture shift. It's we have to change the laws. We have to change the mindset. We have to make people aware. You know, Buffy didn't have a choice. 
Well, I can assure you that many of my male colleagues didn't even think about it. And that is another thing, that awakening and having more women, again, uh, at the table, uh, in the room where it happens, that's going to help transform this. I mean, of course, Martha, someone like Buffy Wicks has the privilege to say, I'm going to bring my baby here, right? A lot of women of color, especially, um, you know, who are also being disproportionately impacted by this pandemic, who are also essential workers and so don't have the luxury of necessarily taking off the same time just don't have the same access. And I think this harkens back to the suffrage question, right? Like giving giving somebody a right, which is also a problematic statement. You shouldn't be given a right, like, right? Like <laughs> you should have the right. Um, but can, can you talk about that? I mean, how much today, a hundred years on, are we still kind of, you know, we move the needle, but it's only for sort of more white women or women who are maybe more white collar at least. Well, I think that um, I'm somebody who thinks that the stories we tell matter. Um, and um, it's important to say, um, I think, that um, hearkening back to um, Rosie Rios's reference to 1800, you know, in 1800, um, many women in this country work. Um, they are enslaved women. They are formerly enslaved women. Um, increasingly, they will be immigrant women. Um, and so when we think about um, sort of where the legacies are um, that we still live with, um, these are stories um, that have their origins in the inequalities between women. Um, and that in some sense, um, it is true that um, the stories that then predominate how we think about what it means to um, arrive at, to move toward, um, to speak about, to claim the rights of women, um, we oftentimes do that through um, the stories, through the voices, through the experience of um, women with a kind of privilege, not only in their own material circumstances, but women with privileged access um, to the pen and to the printing press um, who write their own histories. And um, these become histories that we um, repeat and tell. Um, so I think that um, the stories we tell really matter. Um, but um, I think this centennial year is one in which um, we're all um, have the opportunity, if you will, to um, embrace um, more inclusive stories, more thoroughgoing stories um, that help us think about where the roots of some of the dilemmas we continue to face today lie. Um, when I listen to the story of um, uh, that we've just been uh, sort of mulling over, right, of a, a woman lawmaker in the 21st century um, bringing her child um, into the chamber. Um, I can't help but thinking about enslaved women um, who left their children, um, were required to leave their children, right, in order to care for the children of others. These are, these are complicated, I think, and interwoven stories. Um, at the same time, I think that um, there is a way in which um, this early history um, reminds us um, that uh, we have been here before and we know how to do better. Um, and so um, I take from this conversation um, and its framing um, the ways in which I hope we take lessons from that past and from the ways in which silences are oftentimes built into our stories um, to tell stories that are more inclusive and more reflective of who we are um, as a diverse community of women in the 21st century. 
I mean, one very high-profile woman who is helping write some history this year is Kamala Harris, um, our U.S. Senator from California, um, only the third woman to be a vice president's nominee on a major party ticket. Um, and I just edited a story. I mean, I've covered Kamala Harris for 15 years and I've watched, um, you know, I think the expectations of her as a black woman in law enforcement were always super complicated. Um, and then you look at the way, like, people are purposely mispronouncing her name, for example. Um, the expectations and the pressures, the attacks on her identity. Um, I mean, Senator, you're, you're nodding here. Like, like watching this unfold, what does it tell you about where, you know, have we made progress or are these the sort of same tropes we've just been seeing over and over again? You know, we are held to a very different standard. Um, and, you know, there are all sorts of parallels. A woman who is tough is, you know, bitchy. A man who is tough, he's tough. Uh, the, the qualities, there, there's just a, um, a, a, an inequality, if you will, in the way we characterize people's behavior. Um, but Kamala Harris is a very tough cookie. I, I know Kamala. Uh, she... Uh, uh, you know, she's uh, had to fight her way to, to the, her position, uh, both as a woman who uh, has, uh, um, uh, you know, um, been a woman in law enforcement. That alone is, uh, has been a challenge. And then, of course, a woman of color. Uh, but it is true that the effort to marginalize women in the political world is, is just... Um, I think similar in the corporate world, but, you know, here we are public officials. I remind some of my male colleagues when they start mansplaining to me that I represent the same number of people that they do, uh, that I had to win my election the same way they did, that I may have gotten more votes than they did. But the fact that there is this double standard um, and that we are held to a different standard. Let me tell you one story that I think kind of depicts most of it. They've done studies where they uh, have uh, people with dials and they put a man up on a podium and they ask the people in the, you know, who are part of the study to indicate when they start believing in the credibility of that male uh, speaker. And almost immediately when that man gets up there and takes a hold of the podium and starts to talk, the, the dial goes way up. But when a woman gets up there and starts to speak, it takes at least 15 to 30 seconds before anyone accepts her credibility um, that she might know what she's talking about, that she might be a person who is qualified to, to have that position or to be giving that speech. And that still exists. And it exists, I think, with uh, uh, women, uh, sadly, as well as men. Yeah. Nicole, I mean, Rosie talked about the importance of like visually seeing representation, um, like regardless of, you know, the politics and everything, are you, do you feel excited seeing somebody like Kamala Harris out there? Does it, I don't know. I feel like, like for some women, it's also like they're worried about these attacks on her behalf. Um, but that, I, I don't know. I, I feel like that shouldn't take away from the historic nature of this moment and, and what it really means for our country. So um, I do think that Kamala, you know, seeing Kamala Harris for, is important for me, but also my daughter and other um, little girls. And um, and it's I I was a part of a group of uh, women who signed a letter 
um, to media corporations to say that just beware that the sexist, racist attacks will be coming and you need to you know, do better this time around because 2016, we were just not prepared. It was just, you know, horrible. Um, and so um, I think that well, these well-worn gender stereotypes, um, you know, still play well today. Um, and, you know, it presents another hurdle that women elected officials or women in power have to um, overcome in ways that, you know, men are not held to the same standards that, you know, I, uh, just when Nancy Pelosi with this hair gate, I said, you know, I don't know why we're, we're you know, spending a lot of time talking about this when, you know, um, we have someone who's, you know, thousands of hundreds of thousands of people have died and we're not, <laughs> you know, don't seem to be as crushed or as alarmed. Um, but there's this double standard that women are held to um, and also judge again by the way that they look and their appearances. So um, it, it just, um, you know, I think, and I also want to say that the co connection between the intersections of race and gender also, you know, make it harder. So um, when you talk about a woman standing on the podium and it takes 15 to 30 seconds, I would imagine for black and Latino women, it take about a minute or two. Yeah. Um, so, um, and I experienced that as a professor and even being mistaken when, am I, when I'm in the room um, as, as an assistant and not the, the CEO. Uh, so uh, these, are, these are things that women have to overcome when we think about women stepping into the top spots. In addition to many of the hurdles we talked about, Rosie talked about in terms of not even being able to be accommodated um, in our workplace when we have children. Um, um, so it's, it's still, a, we still have a, a long way to go. It's a, it's a real steep hill. Okay. But I don't want this to be all, 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 all negative, right? I'm not saying you're being negative, but just like, like Rosie, I know you and I have talked about, I think there's two things here. There's, there's women, you know, wanting and believing that they can do it, whether it's run for office or get involved. And then there's just the apathy and this isn't unique to women, but I think especially young people of like, does it even matter? Does my vote matter? Why should I even be involved in the system if it is so corrupt and sort of rigged against me? Um, what's, what's your message? Like, how, how are you talking about that? I know you have uh, college student aged kids. Um, like, like what, what are the messages that you think do break through, especially to younger women? Yeah, no, my favorite question. So uh, when I left the administration in 2016, I spent two years at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard studying uh, millennials and post-millennials. So you're right up my alley. And yes, I have two of my own and my son is 24, my daughter is 20. And I keep saying, when I grow up, I want to be them. Uh, but you know, it's amazing how those cohorts think. Because, so basically, it, the premise is this. Anyone who, who basically was born in the early mid-90s grew up with the internet. So access to information is key. It's no longer what they learn at home or what they learn in the classroom, it's what they see. It's what they have access to on the internet, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so, yes, I mean, to, to get into their heads and understand, you know, why is it that these groups, um, these millennials didn't come out in droves in 2016 or 2018 and, you know, maybe not 2020. And so when I ask those questions, I get two answers that kind of float to the surface, which is, I don't care for the candidates or the establishment is so entrenched that my vote is not gonna make a difference in the outcome, which is really, really unfortunate because yes, it is our civic duty. Yes, we all have a responsibility. And, and people don't realize actually, millennials in this, according to Pew, in this next election, millennials will actually comprise the second largest 
uh, eligible voter cohort right below uh, boomers. So they will represent about 27% of eligible voters, which is huge. You count Gen Z, which is anyone born after 1996 is eligible to vote, and that's another 10%. So I don't think you hear a lot of people talking about that. I'm not quite sure why, but I really do think, and, and this is what I'm doing, I'm investing in their future. Everything that I do, I call myself an accidental feminist, but everything that I do, I don't think of it as a gender issue. I think of it as a future leadership issue. If 51% of the population is marginalized, that is your daughter, your niece, your granddaughter, your wife, your mother, etc. And so it's an equity issue. You need to understand the importance of the outcomes here, that we are all impacted if we don't make a change structurally on how to, again, kind of think about people as people. And so um, for me, again, I, I do kind of put, I am banking on this next generation. What I tell them, actually a really big message that I tell them is there is no knight in shining armor. You are the knight in shining armor. They are very passionate, they're very confident, they, they are, they're very progressive. And, and, and the way they think, they don't think of the world as the same kind of borders, boxes, and boundaries that my generation did, right? So they're less likely to be judgmental when it comes to uh, orientation, gender, uh, religion, race, et cetera. For them, you know, there's optionality. Flexibility is key, and they don't want to be defined by one thing. They want to be seen and heard for all of it. So I, I do think that it's going to take a little bit of time, but when these generations actually know how to channel that passion and find their purpose, you know, hopefully we will provide the resources that they needed in order to, to help them get there. Yeah. Martha, I mean... It, you know, apathy is a certain type of voter suppression in a way, right? Um, but we've also seen historically and continually to this day efforts to suppress votes in, in real ways, right? To prevent people from registering, to prevent, I mean, we've seen physical violence in, in the past. Um, can you talk about if, like, like why you think, talk, I mean, talk about the history of that suppression a little bit, but also like it, People, you wouldn't be trying to suppress someone's vote if you didn't think that they had some power to exercise, correct? I mean, and we see this back dating, you know, to, I think, even pre-19th Amendment. Um, so talk about that a little bit and, and how you think we can sort of overcome both the apathy and also, like, the actual suppression question. Uh, it, there's no, no doubt that um, as we approach the 19th Amendment, um, the talk um, is twofold. It's partly about how this amendment will not um, prevent individual states, particularly Southern states, from disenfranchising um, African-American women. That is um, an open, uh, if you will, pillar of the 19th Amendment. Um, but more to the point, or to your point, um, that is understood to be um, essential um, for keeping um, African-American women from um, tipping the balance of power um, in from the white supremacist Democratic Party, a party that has built its power on the suppression of black men's votes, um, there is indeed a fear, an openly expressed fear, that if black women get the vote, um, they will use it as a block 
um, they will support the Republican Party, and they will tip the balance of power, particularly in um, in cities um, and in state-level contests. So that fear um, is real, um, and it's important to say, because it is not a free-floating um, anti-Black racism as much as it is um, the ways in which anti-Black racism, racism becomes um, an instrument um, in um, American politics for suffragists um, and for Democratic Party leaders um, alike. Um, the intimidation that um, will go on um, once the 19th Amendment is ratified looks eerily like the uh, intimidation and voter suppression tactics that we confront today, which is to say um, poll taxes, um, literacy tests, and more. Um, these are on their face neutral um, state laws and policies. Um, they don't say black women can't vote. They don't say black men can't vote, um, but they are imposed. They are, um, they are uh, implemented in ways that ensure that um, vastly disproportionately black Americans will be kept from the polls. Um, it's not until 1965 um, that we have um, a uh, teeth, right, that are then um, part of the 15th Amendment and the 19th Amendment alike for Black women, which is the Voting Rights Act. And, and that helps me, if I could, just come back to the discussion of Senator Harris, um, because um, there is a question about how to measure or how to, how to weigh the significance of um, her uh, nomination as one measure of women's progress, um, in my view, it would be a mistake to suggest that it took 100 years um, for a Black woman to um, make it onto the Democratic Party ticket as a vice president. Um, it's really just 55 years um, since the Voting Rights Act. Um, and while that might not be a meteoric rise, um, that it's an extraordinary distance to travel in a very short time for Black American women. It's less than half century um, since Shirley Chisholm ran for president in 1972. Um, and so part of our conversation, again, for me, has to be about um, disaggregating some of this and appreciating, frankly, the ways in which Kamala Harris's rise to power um, is in part a reflection about how in a short half century plus, um, black women, despite the impediments, have really built an extraordinary degree of political power, political might, political force in this country, so much so that Senator Harris is not the sole black woman under consideration in 2020. Black women had prepared themselves such that there are six women um, in that pool, um, each of whom was distinct, um, each of who required her own consideration and vetting. Um, Senator Harris is the candidate, um, but she alone doesn't tell the story, I don't think, of how black women get from 1965 to 2020 um, in such an extraordinary fashion. Definitely. Um, if you guys don't have anything to add at this moment, I'm getting a bunch of audience questions I'd love to go to. Um, Senator, did you, did you want to jump in? I did want to just say one of the things, I remember when Shirley Chisholm uh, was announcing her candidacy, Martha, I, I was there, well, not there, I saw it on television, and she was holding her purse, and she was announcing her run for president, and one of the reporters said, well, Mrs. Chisholm, and that right there, 
She wasn't Mrs. Chisholm. She was Congresswoman Chisholm. But Mrs. Chisholm, don't you think your race is going to be a problem for you? And her comment really struck with me. She said, race isn't my problem. It's my gender. And she predicted right then and there that we would have an African-American man as president of the United States before we had a woman. And she was right. And I just, I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on, on that. I mean, Shirley Chisholm was um, infinitely quotable. Um, and <laughs> so we could, we could trade um, quotes that would um, mark her as someone who um, thought just as the way you described. And in other moments, she tells us that neither race nor gender is actually what is um, steering her destiny, um, that she is steering her own destiny devoid of those um, burdens. There's a question in my mind at the same time that um, Chisholm is someone who is um, very much looking to, I think in the way that Nicole alluded to, right, she's looking to ignite nationally a black electorate, right, that is very new um, to national politics still in 1972. We're just seven years from the Voting Rights Act. And what um, Congresswoman Chisholm has the ability to do um, is to speak directly um, and inspire directly black Americans um, even as um, hers is not a candidacy that appears destined um, to um, success. And you know, um, I, I'm sure as I do, um, that um, part of her legacy is um, not only um, many, um, if you will, uh, women and girls without names, it's, um, it's Congresswoman Barbara Lee, um, who begins her political career as a volunteer with Shirley Chisholm. Um, I think that's the story of Shirley Chisholm. Proving once again how representation is so incredibly important for not just the moment, but for the future, right? For people to look at that and say, I can imagine that, I can do it. Um, okay, I am going to go to some of these um, audience questions. And the first one I'll, I'll start with is, what are your thoughts on why the US is so behind in women in government and power compared to so many other countries? Who wants to take that one first? Rosie, you're nodding. Oh, gosh. Uh, where do I begin? Where do I begin? I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think it has to do, well, I mean, our history is a very complicated, challenged history. So we, you know, we technically were founded in 1776, although we existed long before that. And so, you know, when you have a kind of a newly formed nation that's literally, um, uh, you know, destined to be this, this open door uh, for, for anyone to kind of chase their dreams, um, you know, I think that that type of environment, again, isn't always conducive to women, especially if the decision makers are always going to be men. So, you know, even today, if you think about it, you know, if 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 80 percent of the decision makers, executive decision makers are going to be men, um, you know, the, 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 the challenge is going to be how to bring that 80 percent on board. It's not just women talking to women. And, and so we really haven't gotten, I think, to that point where we're going to be. We have been, I guess strategic about this. And I think there's just still resistance overall. It is in our history, but it's also in our present. Not that I wanted to, you know, to bring this up specifically, but I think we have to remind ourselves what happened even just in, in, in the primaries, right? So we had six female candidates for president, six of them, right? And there were approximately 3,979 delegates committed. Could anyone tell me how many of those 3,979 delegates 
how many of those went to the six female candidates combined? Any guesses? 60. 60 out of 3,979. This is our reality today. So again, we're still not there. I do think it has, it has to do with, and again, I, I'm, I'm trying to get to solutions here, this consciousness, this awareness, this third dimension that does not exist in our country for seeing people as people is what's holding us back. And so, you know, when we start realizing kind of what's at stake, that it is that we do have skin in the game, right? The demographics are changing drastically. We will be a majority minority country by 2045, which means that it's likely that our kids, our grandkids are not gonna look like us. Welcome to the melting pot that perhaps we never became. So again, I just think we need to have a kind of a culture shock. Maybe COVID is the beginning of this kind of awareness, this awakening that I think needs to happen. Uh, but I think we have a long way to go. It's happening today. I give, I give you too many examples. We are still stuck. Nicole, do you want to jump in? Yeah, so I think the, 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 you know, the history that you point out of the United States or the founding of America is a, is a very exclusionary history. Um, women, of women um, black people were excluded from participation um, from the very beginning. Um, and so when we talk about the delay or the, first of all, there was a hundred year struggle to win the vote. And then 50 years after that for black women. So if you can put in context what that exclusion um, did to women's political participation and not being able to engage in the public square and politics, um, and a lot of it rooted in sexism and racism, um, all of it actually, and you know your inability to own property. So that's all very connected, and we see the impact of that today. And so when I think about you know women in leadership roles, the number of elected women in elected office, we can trace it back to this these very exclusionary practices from the very beginning. Um, you know, both in, you know, uh, the public square um, and public life, but also in businesses and corporations and women being locked out of those top CEO positions as well. Um, and so, um, and also the internal, you know, some women have also internalized um, gender norms and expectations, um, you know, as well. And so that is also an impediment because Women are a very powerful voting bloc, but we have to be honest that we saw it in 2016 when some women vote against their own interests. So I think all those things um, are real factors in terms of why women don't have as much power and influence. Um, it's both structural and institutional, but it's also these gender norms and expectations as well. So given that, and this is another question from the audience, um, how it strikes me that part of what needs to happen is potentially stronger coalitions between especially white women who have held power historically and women of color. Um, I mean, what are the challenges somebody in the audience asked? And I would, I would ask, what are, what are the opportunities there as well? Right. Because it does seem obviously again, like women aren't all going to vote the same way. They're not all going to be Democrats or Republicans, but it does seem like, I think part of the conversation we're hearing around larger racial justice issues is the responsibility of the people in power to stand up and do that work, right? Um, so uh, Martha, Senator, do one of you guys wanna jump in on that? I, let, let me just jump in for a second. You talk about the structural issues. I think what we need to do is to recognize our common experience as women, whether we're white women or women of color, how do we deal with families when we work? 
if we are the sole breadwinner of a family and we have children? How are we supposed to do both? Uh, we have our childcare um, commitment in this uh, state and country is, is appallingly bad. We have, we have total inadequacy when it comes to quality childcare, accessible childcare. Um, the, the, our society just has not encouraged uh, or made accessible to women of, of regardless of race or ethnicity uh, has, has just simply not given us the tools by which we can then um, uh, feed our families, do our work, uh, be good parents, educate our children. These are things that to me, if we look at as women and every culture, sadly, at least as I uh, understand, every religion is very uh, patriarchal. And we as women share certain common bonds that I hope we can bring together. For example, uh, let me just say my bill on women on corporate boards. I didn't say why women on corporate boards. I said, I wanna see more women on corporate boards. And uh, the bill calls for that. And as women, when we come together and we recognize there are eminently qualified women of all shapes and sizes and, and colors and backgrounds, that's what we need to focus on uh, is getting more women into that corporate boardroom so that we can develop more family-friendly policies at work. Um, and I think our work, the structural impediments to women working are universal. And it's my hope that when we come together and with that intersectionality, if you will, and, and uh, uh, Martha, uh, uh, you know, you're the expert on this better than I, uh, historically, I think these are things where we can amass greater strength, greater power, and a greater voting block. Because where is the whole discussion about child care? Wasn't it Kamala who brought that issue to the fore in, in this year's debate? Let's find those issues where uh, women have that shared experience and create that kind of political power and influence as a result. I mean, Martha, are there good examples you can point to where that work has been successfully done and has led to women you know, seizing more power, exercising more power? Um, well, I don't want to disappoint your, your question, Marisa, <laughs> but, um, uh, but I, I, I do want to make a slightly different point, so I apologize yeah, um, in, in, in picking up on the, the senator's um, sort of entreaty. You know, um, one of the things that um, African-American women historically have strained um, to put on the political agenda um, for American women more broadly, um, going back to the earliest days of women's rights and through the suffrage movement, um, is the scourge of sexual violence and, um, and what today we would call sexual harassment. Um, and um, they don't get a good hearing um, on that through um, much of the years that take us to um, the 19th Amendment, despite um, really foregrounding their own experiences um, as public women, um, and then um, putting that politically on the table within their own organizations. They don't get a good hearing on that. Um, when Tarana Burke um, brought to us um, the movement that she's um, called Me Too, um, I wondered if that wasn't a moment and it wasn't an issue um, in which American women might come together um, across many other um, differences. Um, to talk about, in part, what, what challenges, what troubles American women um, in many, many walks of life 
um, from working women um, to elite corporate women. Um, the problem of sexual harassment and sexual violence is one that um, the women I write about would tell you is part of what keeps them out of public life, um, what makes their public lives profoundly constrained um, because they are always um, on guard, they are always having to take special care um, because they are always facing the threat, especially um, in early America when they travel alone. Um, and I wonder um, if that isn't the sort of question, that isn't the sort of issue that seemed to ignite um, both the consciousness and the activism of American women not so long ago, um, but it hasn't had a traction um, that seems to be able to bring us together here in 2020. And I, I wonder why others think that has receded from um, the main stage. Does anyone want to jump in? Well, partly, I think, because of backlash. So many of the women who were participating and coming forth with their, you know, tales of sexual violence and harassment, um, there was a lot of backlash, and it was very orchestrated and calculating. And just to your point, um, even, um, you know, Black women's voices around in the Me Too moment, you know, haven't received the same sort of space, um, or, you know, as you say, to be heard in the same way as other voices. So I do want to say that although women have a shared experience, you know, some shared experiences as women because of race, because of class, and I would also add gender identity and sexuality, those experiences look a bit different. Um, and we all know that sometimes when the, the door, uh, doors of opportunity and access um, swing open, many of the women who face, you know, different kinds of barriers are the last one to, you know, come through the door, which again, the 19th amendment is one of the prime, uh, is a prime example of that. Um, but I, you know, I am optimistic um, that there, you know, as we, you know, think about the pandemic and the economy uh, and working women and, you know, all of these things, Kamala Harris and, you know, this moment that we are able to find some of this common ground, but not losing sight of those, those differences that are also important in shaping women's lived experiences as well. Um, I have a very practical question, which is, well, two really. One is how can, what can we do on the street level to affect change? And, and somebody else just wants to know how to get their ideas to local, state, and federal leaders. Um, maybe Senator and Rosie, you guys could both sort of jump in on that. But what, what do you think about, as a policymaker here, uh, Senator, what, how, how do people get their ideas to you? How do you? How do you get the ideas that you run with? Well, you know, with the internet today, you get hundreds, if not thousands of emails uh, every day, some of them uh, with constructive ideas and some of them telling you what they think of you um, that you need to delete or you'll start uh, feeling kind of bad about yourself. Um, but uh, I think joining groups, joining local grassroots organizations and having your ideas sort of uh, come up uh, through those grassroots um, uh, is a really helpful way to do it. Sometimes too, just sending uh, an email, a letter or something, I've got an idea, but I really think working at the grassroots level mm -hmm. is so under um, appreciated. Uh, when, a, when a group uh, of people, like-minded people comes up, uh, 
to Sacramento, for example, when we used to be able to do that, and, and uh, comes to an office. And I try to meet with as many people as I can. Remember, a state senator in California represents a million people. So it's about a third greater than a Congress uh, member's uh, uh, district. Uh, it's hard to meet everybody. But when you have certain groups that you have worked with, that you're familiar with, that the work they do is quality work, it's well thought out, they've got uh, innovative ideas, they come from a place of really positive energy. Uh, it's an opportunity really to effectuate a change and certainly getting involved in political campaigns is so important uh, on that grassroots level. Um, uh, Marissa, I don't know if you worked on my campaign when you were at UCSB. I'm a reporter, I never work on campaigns. <laughs> <laughs> But certainly you you were aware of what was going on. And had you chosen, let's say, to get involved, I was very, very engaged with these students at the university, as I think many of my colleagues are. We really want to mentor and be role models for young people because the future really is theirs. Uh, these millennials are going to be taken over pretty soon, as they should. And we want to make sure that they've got uh, some direction and perhaps some of the uh, uh, shared experiences and some of the wisdom that we bring, they can reject it. But, you know, we've lived lives uh, that have gone through a lot of what they will end up going through. Maybe we'll experience it differently, but there's value in that intergenerational discussion as well. So I think those are things, never give up, participate, be part of a a grassroots group, get involved in a campaign, meet the people who are the influencers and the policy makers, and someday you can be too. Well, I'll tell you, I was at the student newspaper, so I was sticking a microphone in your face even back then, and you did answer. I'll say, that's why I remember you. Um, Rosie, what, I mean, what's your best advice in terms of, especially at the federal level, because I think for so many people that feels so far away, um, but it, it is where the rubber meets the road on all the issues. It is hard to get anything done, period, uh, of anything structural. But certainly at the federal level, you know, I think it depends on what the idea is, obviously. But I'll give you a great example. So a lot of people don't realize, for example, that education and curriculum is actually decided at the state level, not the federal level. The federal level just gives guidance. So, you know, depending on what your issue is, I mean, for me, I took on... Uh, in my portfolio, I, I had uh, I had 4,000 employees, about a $5 billion budget, eight different facilities. And, and for me, I wanted to kind of prove a point that if you could turn around these organizations in, in the federal government, you could turn around anything. And so that was, for me, kind of my little social experiment to take on two agencies who were literally almost at the bottom of the barrel in terms of employee morale, um, tackle them for eight years, and in the end, you know, triple our production, saved a billion dollars in the first five years and increased morale at record levels. So, um, you know, ideas are great, fabulous, but if you want to get heard, you definitely have to do your homework. You definitely have to do your due diligence. You definitely have to kind of be what I call a constructive disruptor. And that includes being very, very strategic. So, um, you know, I'll never forget when we launched the first ever public engagement process to solicit feedback from the American public, and that was for the currency redesign to, to uh, hear who should be in our currency. It was the first time ever that there was this initiative that included you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, emails, letters, et cetera. And I spent almost a year going around the country, meeting with thousands of people face-to-face, -face, 
hearing their feedback. And I, you know, it's, it's, it was interesting. It was difficult to hear uh, so many different opinions, sometimes not always positive. Um, but, I, you know, not everyone does that. Not everyone wants to do that. In this particular case, I think we needed to do that. Um, but, but getting heard at the federal level, you know, it's not going to be easy. But I would say, um, you know, through social media, I think is, is, you know, we didn't have that tool for certainly in my generation growing up. That's certainly probably a good place to start. But if you have an idea, think it through, really, really think it through. And if you really want to get something done at the federal level, you know, we do have our federal representatives that represent your constituencies, whether it is in Congress, whether it is in the Senate. Um, that's probably the best place to start in terms of, you know, a grand idea. Fabulous. Well, I want to say thank you to all of our panelists. You were fabulous. I, I have a hundred more questions, but I'll leave that for another time. And thank you so much to our audience for your excellent questions. We're going to close here for tonight. Um, thank you for joining us for this conversation. This video is going to be published on Zocalo's site, zocalopublicsquare.org, and as a podcast. And you will be able to read a summary of the discussion, short interviews with our panelists, and many other essays and articles about women's history and social movements also at that site. Um, and I want to remind everyone this event is the second in a series of three events co-presented with the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. It's in connection with their current exhibit, Rise Up LA, on women's history and activism. Please come back for the next one. That'll be on December 3rd asking what are today's LA women fighting for. Thank you to all our speakers for sharing your insights and again to the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County who co-presented tonight's event. Have a great night.